You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. All right. Happy New Year. It's Howard back with Mark, Patrick, Towner, and Tristan this week. Kicking off 2022, guys. Hope you had great holidays. And Mark, you uh, were stuck in your house. I know everybody was pretty much stuck in there. Love making fires, baking bread. It was a real domestic holiday. All right. Very good. Stuck in Bryn Mawr. Um, All right. I posed a question on our uh, Beltway Briefing text exchange this week, um, which is, uh, I think a good topic for this week is confidence in government. Is it gone? Does it matter? And if it's gone, how do we get it back? And let me just say, when I posed that question, it was, I don't know, Tuesday. And I was thinking about COVID. And as you guys know, I was out of the country over the holidays and I came back to the US and I just, I felt like, whereas things were fairly orderly where I was, it just felt like such a morass. As soon as I landed at the Miami airport, which by the way, is one of the worst places on the face of the earth, just to be clear. (laughs) Um, But it just felt it felt out of control as soon as I got back to the United States of America. And, but then January 6th came along the anniversary and I felt like, well, what are we, I I feel like the question is even more applicable in the context of January 6th. So Mark, start, start with you. What, this confidence is, is it gone? Does it matter anymore? Can we get it back? What, what are your thoughts? Yes. Yes. And I'm looking forward to hearing how is the answer to how we get it back, but it, it's gone to a great degree. It's been going for a while. This is a long time coming. I would go back uh, 50 years. So the, the peak of American confidence in government was 1960 when we were safe and, and prosperous. And you then have an assassination, Vietnam, Watergate, uh, 9-11, and a great recession in this century. So it was it was drip, drip, drip. And then 2016, Trump, COVID, and the bottom fell out. So I think we are at an all-time low of trust and confidence in government, and it absolutely matters. It absolutely matters because look at the consequence of no confidence in government. Land in Miami and then get home and look at the January 6th anniversary, the It matters because it is only together that we are going to conquer COVID, and it is only together that we are going to keep this republic of ours. 
And to the degree that there's a lack of confidence in our government and it further divides us, we're we're in a bad place. But but I know Towner's gonna tell us how to get it back. That's well, the part I haven't gotten to yet. My my only response to you for now is I'm not sure that I agree that between 1960 and 2001, that Confidence in government was not reinvigorated to some extent. I feel like, I mean, Reagan is, 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 um, I'm sorry. He's idealized a bit, but I I feel like in the eighties leadership and the, the tone he set for the country did um, I think restore some confidence and, and pride in government. He came two two different things. One, he came to Washington to dismantle the federal government. So Ronald Reagan's election and and administration are not to me evidence of confidence. It, it's to me the opposite. But but you do put your finger on something very important, which is the the failure of leadership. Part of the loss of confidence has been the abject absence of of inspiring leadership at the top. And and Reagan did bring that. I I will give you that. Reagan brought an inspiring leadership at at the top. But what he was leading was a dismantling of the government. Yeah, but but Mark, dismantling government or shrinking government and confidence in government are two totally different things. I would argue, and I, I believe, well, I don't hold the record on the podcast for the longest service in government, but the longest service in the executive branch of government. And I got to tell you, I was talking with my kids about this earlier in the week. The government is a bloated, lumbering bureaucracy. And and part of confidence in government is slimming it down. So I don't naturally, I think you'd expect this from me. I don't agree that shrinking government dismantling government is 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 inconsistent with confidence in government but towner go uh, mark i would add you spent four years complaining about him nominating so many people to the bench to the executive branch uh that mitch mcconnell was pushing through that's the opposite of dismantling government he was trying to put republicans into the the uh judiciary branch specifically as as he was going through but I, you know, I'm I'm going to go back to even the first question. So it's not about how we get it back. I don't know that we're ever going to get a general consensus that one thing is good anymore in the era we live in. This is not the 1940s. I, I would argue, you know, first of all, it's never as bad as it has been in the past or could be again. Uh, you know, I would say there wasn't a lot of confidence in government from half of the country in the 1850s. And look what happened. And that's a problem. And that became a huge problem. Like our past, we have gone through some stuff and it's probably not even as worse as we're going through now. Um, But we've made it through stronger on the back end of each of those times. What I would say, though, is that generally speaking, citizens in this country do not have a faith in large institutions. I don't care what it is. You could say people like their NFL football team, but hate the NFL. Why do they hate the NFL? Well, they hate the NFL because it's just the NFL. It's it's the, the parent organization, and they think it's just nefarious uh, to its core. When tornadoes strike the Midwest, people say, where's the federal government? 
Yep. Where's FEMA? Where's where's folks coming in? Where's to help? my money? Where's my money? Yep. Where's folks coming in to help? No, from a serious standpoint, where's government when disaster strikes? Where's government when national security is threatened? People still will use the national government. They still have a faith in the national government in their times of need, but it's become politically fun over the last 30 or 40 years, and especially in the dawn of social media, to say, if you're a large anything, you're bad, and I'm just going to rail against you. Yeah, and even cynicism well, in government just, it, it's not just about just a quick uh, footnote agree with a lot of that by the way but it's not just large institutions there's nothing more local than a school board and confidence in school boards is at an all-time low because of the politicization of covid and and more so it it's it's beyond just size i think but yeah it's relative size. You you hate the teachers union, but you like your teacher. Yep. You know. Yep. But I interrupted Patrick. No, I was going to say I, I agree with Tanner. I mean, cynicism in government is as old as the republic itself, right? So it's it, it that that isn't the issue. Um, and also to Howard's point, you know, government is just as broad a term as there can be. I mean, there's you know the executive branch and a lot of core functions. Uh, that we think of. And then there's Congress, which is a completely different animal and how how people view each of those and then how they view the totality of it. Um, you know, something I have noted, I mean, if you look at just because I think this period of time that we've all lived and worked in has been, you know, it's been tumultuous. There has just been uh, electoral flip after another these last several cycles, both uh, at the presidential and congressional level. And every single time we get a new majority or a new president, uh, they believe uh, in every fiber of their being that the election result was uh, in itself a mandate for a whole bunch of policy priorities that the national party wants to see happen. And I am willing to say, I think that's never what the election result is about. Not a single time do I think that you know, one election result, one midterm result, one presidential result means that voters are crying out for a comprehensive national agenda to reverse what just happened two or four years earlier. And I think, and I, I hear this when you just talk to, you know, out, out in the neighborhood, just kind of regular people who aren't all that political, a sense that it is just, they're exhausted by the, the just the fact that everyone thinks that we got to start from scratch every single time. I, I just don't I think the, the whole election of President Biden, and this is where I think there is some disappointment and you can tie some of the, the approval dip to it was an election we've talked about on this podcast before for confidence in government, restoring confidence in government. It was not for transformational democratic change. And just the same way that uh, when Trump won, it, it wasn't an election for uh, every single facet of his populist agenda. It wasn't that either. That's why the House flipped two years later. So it's just, I think that <laughs> elected officials need to start showing some restraint when they get elected. And obviously people want to go to Washington to do things. I understand that. You don't want to just go there and and you know do ceremonial whatever. But you can't go in there thinking that you need to try and jam through every single thing uh, that the National Democratic or Republican Party wants to see, because I think the majority of Americans are sick of it. Tristan, jump in. 
You know, it, it's interesting, and I, I I agree with a lot of the, of what's been said. Um, but I have to add, you know, for a lot of communities, um, confidence in government has never been as strong as it should be, and I think that that is where we have to um, start. Of you know, it it has always been a us versus them mentality in politics. It's you are conservative and you are liberal, and it is a battle between the two. And although it's a battle in Congress, it's not a battle between the voters. And we haven't been able to figure out how to separate that between the voters. You you are the individuals who are getting us here. You're, you're not conservative. You're not liberal. You're not fighting your neighbor. You know, that's for us to do in Congress, to debate and, and have these policies. It has trickled down to the voters. And so we have in America, really two Americas, split down the middle. Uh, this election proved that. And I, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've kind of taken into my New Year's resolution as it relates to just overall being at Cozen is that's kind of our job for clients of breaking through the gridlock and, and trying to explain this mess that is going on, how small clients, large clients, middle clients in between. Um, yes, there's confusion. Yes, there's division. But, you know, there's a pathway forward. And, you know, we've had this conversation before, you know, a lot's been going on, but President Biden has been able to get through pandemic relief twice. He's been able to get through infrastructure, which has been, you know, on the docket for 15, 20 years. He's gotten that through. He stabilized the economy, hasn't made it perfect, hasn't increased it, but at least he stabilized it uh, to some extent all through this pandemic. But as, 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 as has been said, you know, social media has taken the realm of politics and turned it into this conversation of us versus them, not policy disagreements. And I think that's where the confidence in government is, that I am against my government. My government is against me. Not that we're having constructive disagreements about policy. It's just that we are against each other. Well, you make a great point about um, the need to to explain it to clients, because, of course, that's why we're all here. And, and that's what this is all about. And I think too often people see the headlines and assume that nothing is happening when actually a lot is happening, just like during the Trump administration. How many covid packages did they do on a bipartisan bipartisan basis Four, towner tells us four. So things can actually get done at the end of the day. But you're right. It's the it's the heated rhetoric. And I would say. I would argue there are three Americas because I think most people um, and, and most definitely <laughs> I would say the five of us on this podcast is we all have our different perspectives. We agree and disagree about all sorts of things, but I think 80% of the country basically agrees about most things and actually isn't crazy and doesn't want to kill the other guy, the other person. And I, yeah. I really, I, I think it's the the fringes that that tear us apart. Even well, if it was fifty percent, that would still be fine. It, it is a significant plurality, right? It's yeah. It's a, it is an absolute like two to one plurality at minimum. I mean, it's just it, that, you know, that, that, in a two party system, it is highly problematic <laughs> that one party believes that the president was not legitimately elected. The, the presence in the Republican platform of the big lie is symptomatic and caused both, but, but 
that's more than a fringe. And, it it and is. That's, that's why we're in we're in a no, tricky a, place. And I'm that, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw a comparison, Mark. And I know it's I'm not. There's no I'm not intending to convey that these things are moral equivalents. You know that I think that the big lie is the worst thing in the history of this country. Literally, perhaps one of the worst things. Anyway, slavery. Yeah, it's on. It's on. It. It's. It's a. It's a second. Okay. Um, The. um, But you know, back when I was in government, and Dick Cheney was the vice president, and we went to war in Iraq, and he was basically running the Bush administration to some degree. He was vilified by the left. I'm sure if we were doing this podcast back when he was the vice president, it would have been filled with rhetoric from you and others on the podcast about how Dick Cheney was the worst thing in the history of the world. And look at what happened yesterday. He showed up on the floor of the United States House of Representatives and held hands with Nancy Pelosi because... He finds and his daughter finds what's going on with the Republican Party today to be so abhorrent. And if we could just break through, look, we need to discuss and debate legitimate policies, legitimate policy differences. But how do we do it in a way such that we don't vilify the like the decent patriotic people on the other side that have a difference of opinion like Dick Cheney. Yeah. I mean, he was strong armed and he made some bad decisions and he made some good decisions, but he's not the worst guy in the history of the universe. Trump is, he's not. So how do we, but like, how do we take that and separate you know, differences, look at people differently and and don't let it get to that level. Well, it's, I mean, I think that our, it, it it would be helpful if our other federally elected officials did a halfway decent job of doing it themselves. I mean, it's, it's a lot to expect of a, a country that's been given the internet and total anonymity to say whatever they want on any given day. Uh, It's, it's a lot to expect of, I think of ordinary people just because as we've seen people are, are just people, but it, it is too bad. And it's regrettable that our elected officials increasingly are starting to reflect uh, that vitriol that that's a problem. And you saw in the coverage yesterday, I was so struck by not by the speeches and the grandeur and the, the kind of, typical Washington type stuff you tend to see with memorial events or stuff, but just the, the, like the firsthand kind of testimony of the members you talked about what it was like being there that day. And then what it's been like to work with uh, their colleagues since. And, and that part, I mean, it was like raw and super honest and it, it just, it, it showed that there has really been a shift uh, both in how, our elected officials work together and the types of people, frankly, that we're sending to Washington to represent us. And I think that's, that's a problem. Tristan, you work for a member in a 
in South Carolina, in in a red state, a a, a blue dog type too. Um, I mean, you you must have like how did how did he walk the line? How like how do you do it? Like obviously, you you represent or. I guess a blue part of a red state in Congress, you got to be able to talk to everybody. You know, it's um, it's interesting because I, I, to answer this question, I have to compare the two South Carolina members I worked for. You know, John Spratt, who served for decades um, for South Carolina, was budget committee chairman. Um, you know, he he walked a line with respect with his colleagues. So it was it was a let's have a conversation. Let's talk about this. We're not going to agree, but we're going to respect each other. And, and we're going to we're going to walk in and, and figure out how to find middle ground or anything that we do. Um, I oftentimes say that he was the last budget chairman to actually have a balanced budget uh, for the president. Uh, we, we haven't had one since. And so I, it, for Cunningham, it was very different because times changed. And, you know, people changed and it became a hard conversation about policy. It was, why are you voting that way? Why are you voting with Nancy Pelosi, you know, 90% of the time? Not why are you voting for important legislation to get funding for my district? Why are you voting for with Nancy Pelosi? Um, they vilified her and they vilified leadership rather than actually looking at the policy differences or looking at the policy proposals that were out there. And so we walked away from the, 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 the table of actually getting stuff done and, and walked to the table of trying to find sound bites for Twitter or sound bites for the next newscast. It has nothing to do with actually doing the work. It's about who can get famous in five seconds on TikTok. Um, who can actually like be on a news station and, and have you know 15, 20 minutes to just ramble about things. That's where we've come. And so it's a very different Congress. Um, it's a very difficult Congress. I'm upset as a former staffer um, you know, who spent a lot of time actually working with colleagues to get stuff done, um, who wanted to do things uh, you know, the 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 you know regular order way. Now that's gone. And and so for that it's 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 upsetting and depressing. The other part to it, too, for Republicans, for me, in not acknowledging the the insurrection is what it is really what it was um, on January 6th last year, is the fact that so many of their staff were in danger. And so many of the, the, the workers that who used to be in the cafeteria and I would speak to the janitors, the support staff, you know, those who we don't see uh, and who we see but don't see, really, who were scared for their lives. At least acknowledge that. At least acknowledge that they were scared and that this was an issue. They won't even do that. And so I think that that for me is depressing um, for a lot of staff and really it's a disappointment um, for the entire Republican Party at this point. Counter, do you think Republican staff feel like that? Uh, I do think a lot of them feel like that to a certain degree. I actually do. I mean, I, having been in the Capitol through a lot of bad stuff over the last, you know, 20 years. I, um, I, anybody who tells me that, uh, you know, like Ted Cruz did on with Tucker Carlson last night, for example, um, you know, that, uh, that it was just, it, they're not terrorists. Uh, for example, they're not insurrectionists. He apologized for using that term. No, no, they are. And they were, and they knew what they were doing was wrong and they did it anyway. And, but, you know, again, 
maybe maybe I just have a, a weird perspective on this, but we think about each one of these things in the moment and we say, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But you can go back through our country's history and it has been worse on many, many, many occasions. I think the only difference, I mean, you know, hey, look, McCarthyism, I mean, you could you could sit there, yellow journalism in the early 1900s. Shoot, Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. You know, and th- these are bad things that are happening throughout the history of our country. But I think the thing that is a little bit different right now and that has sort of defined maybe these last 10 years and, and how we view the moments in history that we're currently living is that everybody can now have their opinion. We're in internet two and three generation where everybody can write their blog. Everybody can write their tweet before it was, there was eventually over time, there was an understanding of what an event was. And that was defined by a narrow subset of people. It was defined by journalists. It was defined by government leaders but it was defined as something. It was defined in history textbooks that kids would read in school. And maybe not defined appropriately at the time. Look at civil rights, for example. Yeah. I, I mean, it's I agree with all that. Everybody. I, I do think leadership and tone and character matters a lot. Um, you know, and I think with the right, I, I look, I think it's really important to call out January 6th and what it was and to I think the administration did the right thing in shining a spotlight on it because if you don't rem- if you don't keep alive in your memory bad things that have happened they happen again and you know I've grown up with that as it relates to the holocaust and that's kind of the central um, view of of the Holocaust in the Jewish community is you have to keep the memory of it alive. And by the way, I mean, no, they didn't kill six million people when they um, burst into the Capitol. But I frankly um, put it, I, I think the seriousness of some of the stuff that's gone on is 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 on that level, or it's of that ilk. And so I think they appropriately shined a spotlight on it. I I don't think Biden's speech was particularly well delivered. I don't think he's a good or he's clearly not a good orator. He um it, the if you read the speech in print, it's I'm sure it's awesome. If you listen to the speech like I did, I think it stunk. And having read it it was awesome. Having watched it, it was weak. And there is no denying that President Biden is failing to inspire confidence in himself and, and in his administration. But but this moral equivalence is really a problem, I think. Where, where we say there's a failure of leadership in government, there's a failure of leadership on both sides. And, and I just said it, I'll say it again. 
there is a failure of leadership at the top of the United States government today. And that is is a, a bad fact in a pandemic. But you have the incoming Speaker of the House of Representatives of the United States of America, Kevin McCarthy, the presumptive next. <laughs> you've already, <laughs> you, Mark, Mark, that's election fraud. You've, you've, you're counting yeah, so the ballots I, before I'm they've the been cast. On, I'm the only guy on this screen who hasn't conceded the election already. But I'm yielding to the presumption I'm told I should be making. And he says that Joe Biden stole the election. Right. It's, it's it's absurd it's and ridiculous. Biden, but it's a difference in kind. It's not a difference in degree. Oh, my God. A hundred percent. I completely before, I completely agree. Somebody needs to lift us out of this. Some is, leader has to lift us out. Of exactly. This. A leader, a Democrat, a Republican, a Martian. Well, Martian would be a different problem, but a leader has to lift us out of it. One party has no leaders on the bench or or in the game. The other party has a unanimous leadership that says the current government of the United States of America is illegitimate and is only there because it criminally stole an election. So, so we got to rise above that or we're never going to be able to talk to you. By, by the way, I thought Biden gave way too much oxygen in his speech to refuting the legitimacy, the illegitimacy of the election. Like, what? And his speech was too long. Like, why? Why do? You, why did he have to relitigate it, Patrick? I don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try. I read it this morning. The text, because I mean, to Mark's point, I did want to. I wanted to take the delivery part out of it, and I, I guess like critiquing speeches is so hard. It's like critiquing literature. It's like it. It is. It's what you have to measure it against what your personal expectations were and what you wanted to hear maybe, which is different for everyone else. Like a lot of Democrats were really thrilled with the speech yesterday, but I think it's because they wanted to hear that sentiment because they're still so mad and they, and they want, they want president Biden to be leading and fighting for them. And that, and, and I think you saw that in the coverage of, of the speech afterwards. And I think, the press went right along with it too. I think there was just a, they wanted a counterpunch, right? They, they, they desperately wanted that. So it was widely celebrated. I wasn't looking for that. It wasn't what I was expecting. I, I feel like, you know, one of my favorite things to do in Washington, DC is to, uh, you know, go up to the Lincoln Memorial and you read, uh, I was, I was looking for more of a, uh, a recognition of what happened and the moment. Uh, and, and because I don't know if he, I don't think he was speaking to anyone that didn't already agree or disagree with him yesterday. And maybe a speech can't accomplish that. Like it was at what, like nine in the morning <laughs> on news. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know this in this day and age, like what, what could possibly unite the country. Uh, but I, I was expecting more of a solemn speech than I was, uh, you know, an attack against Trump. And, and, and listen, that, that was just a personal thing. That's not a right or wrong thing. Um, 
So, you know, it's talking about standing at the Lincoln Memorial uh, underscores Towner's point, which you and I, Towner, have have talked about as a, a sub theme through our podcast, which is the historical perspective where, yes, yes, it's been worse. It's been much worse. The Civil War was much worse than where we are. God knows where we're headed. But the Civil War, of course, was much worse. But but when you mention the Lincoln Memorial, I, I have to I have to smile because Abraham Lincoln's election was not seen as illegitimate by the Confederacy. It wasn't stolen. It was simply seen as a ratification of the Confederacy's need to withdraw from the Union, to, yeah. to quit the country. And the and the Gettysburg address was widely panned in the press of the time. Yeah, I was um, referring, Mark, more to the second inaugural than I was to the Gettysburg address. I that that which, the second Yeah, which didn't have time to get uh panned because Lincoln was shot. Right. <laughs> shortly afterwards, which was also worse than where we are today so yeah, far. True. So far. I I mean, I, I just think look at how Lincoln is celebrated um as a leader. Yep. And an yep. orator. And I, I think all of this, whether you're talking about COVID, you're talking about January 6th, you're talking about the financial crisis where I had a front row seat communication is always where things win or lose um, public trust. And, you know, COVID what's going on with COVID. The CDC has been horrible. Horrible. He won't do this because it's not in his, in his nature, but he should this afternoon, don't even wait till Monday. He should fire uh, Dr. Walensky at the, the CDC whether it's her fault or not, the entire country, including everybody on this podcast, has lost confidence in that institution. And he should fire her and put Tristan in charge, put Mike Bloomberg in charge, put anybody in charge who can lead and communicate to your point. Yeah, it's all about communication. You know, when we were doing our thing in 08, look, I've, as I've told you guys a thousand times, like I'd go to battle with Hank Paulson and Tim Geithner any day of the week. Um, but we never did a particularly effective job at telling the American public why we were doing what we were doing and, and, and why it was, it was necessary. And there was a lot of stuff that went on that gave the opposite impression. Um, that we were helping the fat cats and, you know, so I, it's always the challenge. It's always the challenge. uh, When you say the fat cats, just another quick, quick footnote, you know, you were dividing the country Howard into three groups. I think earlier, I'm not entirely sure who's who, but, but I'm adding a fourth tier three. These, there is a gilded age kind of, thing going on where the the super rich who have a greater concentration of wealth than ever before in American history, including the Gilded Age, 
are are not looking to government to do anything, at least in the Gilded Age, the super rich owned government and wanted to build railroads and dig canals. But there's a there is an uber class that just wants government to go away and get out of its way. The the <laughs> Facebook, Google and and apple and more and and that that is yet another challenge that is going to require people actually talking across the aisle and and figuring out what to do with it because that concentration of not only wealth but of of power it isn't they they aren't looking to fix government they're they're looking to just avoid it yeah yep it's a, it's, it's, it's a communication issue all, all the way around. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, you know, who, who actually just took over as uh, the executive director of the Congressional Black Caucus. He left the White House, the vice president's office, and went over to, uh, to run the CBC. And, you know, him, as well as a, another chief of staff of a retiring member, won't call the member's name, um, you know, and I asked, I'm like, so why are all these members retiring? Like, why are they leaving in masses? Because the, the headline is saying that Democrats are seeing the, the sea of red coming and they want to leave. And he was like, well, my boss uh, is leaving because he doesn't trust his colleagues. Um, he doesn't believe that they have the best, his best interests at heart when it comes to his safety, doesn't believe that he actually want to get things done. And the confidence and the trust is gone. And so the, the whole system is broken. And so why be here to try to come do things and leave your family and leave your home to come actually make change when the other side actively doesn't want to do that? And my, of course, my response is, well, you know, Republicans aren't going to be in charge, um, you know, forever. You know, the pendulum swings. It's like, no, it has gotten so deep now that it has trickled down to new members and young members who are coming in, who coming in don't want to have a conversation. They just want to do things for themselves. They want to make a, make an approach or an opinion. They want to make a stand for something um, that, again, gets them on the news tonight, but they actually don't want to get anything done. Uh, and the trust and the, and the, the camaraderie of, of Congress is has disappeared ultimately. Yeah, but Tristan, I think it's been like that for a long time. I mean, you know, you see, first of all, I don't think the CBC has trusted Republicans for going on 40 years now, at least since the formation of the CBC uh, going all the way back. But but we that like John Banner. John Banner was on case. We, 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 we at least knew when he said something, he meant it. Now, after him, there you yeah, go. all bets off. But, you know, it's interesting because freshmen, the, the newest members are always the one that create ones that create the most problems because they have just come off of a campaign trail. Generally speaking, they have come through more often than not a contested election where it's been, you know, rhetoric on both sides. I don't care what generation you're talking about. There was campaign ads. There was cartoons back in the, you know, in the papers in the 1800s, for example, that were particularly vile. And so, you know, it, going back and forth, you come off of that heat of the battle and all of a sudden you come in as the least likely to want to work with your colleagues. It's seniority. It's growth and maturity in the organization that creates the John McCain's of the world, uh, that creates, quite frankly, the Joe Biden's of the world, who were famously uh, collegial in their in their efforts to talk to their colleagues and find agreement. You know, coming out of the heat of the battle of the, your first campaign, freshmen are never going to be the most trustworthy uh, to go to to find leadership. You know. 
I, I think with Mark, to your point about the wealthy, yeah, they want less government, but they, there's also, I mean, look at what Bill Gates has done. Bill and Melinda Gates have done with the, their foundation and um, the giving pledge. And, and there's, it's almost like we need a recalibration of, of roles. And I think part of what's going on is, you know, there's been this, look at how much money's been spent. I mean, there's been this tremendous increase in the size of government, which I don't think most people actually want. Biden is only trying to increase it more. And again, I don't think most people want that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I just don't, I think I just don't see it. uh, Any given plank in the build back better platform, you probably have a majority of Americans supporting. It's like you always say the, the sum of the part, the whole is less than the sum of when it comes to build back better. Individual programs are very popular, but when you put them all together, I, I don't know that you have a majority of Americans supporting it. And, and I just got to say one other thing because it makes me crazy. What makes me crazy about the wealthy, the uber wealthy, the Mark Zuckerbergs just wanting government to leave them alone because they're a sovereign state. They don't exist without the Internet. The Internet doesn't exist without government. It wasn't actually Al Gore who invented it, but it was the United States, the gov- government, the Department of Defense specifically. And the, the idea that they would would be better off without government the so next time they drive anywhere, they should uh, remember who built the roads. Yeah, but end of speech. But. I feel like if we can recalibrate, we can have some better communication at the top, which is a challenge because of who's at the top. And I don't only mean Biden. I I mostly mean Kevin McCarthy, like you were, like you were saying earlier. Um, If we can, if we can recalibrate and, redefine the role of government and have some better clear communication and strength of leadership. I actually think I'm optimistic. I think we can bring the country together. I, I subscribe to your view towner that things have been worse. Things have been better, but things have, things have been worse. And I don't know. I want, I choose to be optimistic about, about the future of, of this country. I think one of the Rothschilds said, I think I've said it before on the podcast that they made a ton of money betting against the future or, or betting in favor of the future of the United States of, of America when everybody thought it was doom and gloom. You know, I think the stock market, for one, is telling us that our prospects are are bright and prospects are brighter than the rest of the world, frankly. So I don't know. Um, the market knows something. And I just think the narrative, the constant narrative of we're so screwed up, we're so divided, we can never bring this country back together. I just, I don't know. I don't, I I choose not to subscribe to that. And I think Tristan's right that, um, I think Tristan's right that 
that there's um, the possibility of, of bringing people together and that we need to cut through the noise for clients because stuff is actually stuff is actually happening out there. So that's, that, that's my thought going into this year. Um, but Mark, you get, take the last word. Empires come and go someday. So too will the United States of America, but I completely agree with you. Not yet, not today. The, the scary part is what we are going to have to go through to get ourselves back together. How how low do we go until we rally and pull ourselves out of the hole we've dug for ourselves? But we will, we will. It's not time for the American empire to go. We may not make it 2000 years like the Roman empire, but, but we're gonna make it more than the 300 we've been around so far. We we just gotta stop digging though. The first rule of being in a hole is stop digging. I mean, if God stop digging. Right. But if God forbid war broke out, war with China, <laughs> I ha- I believe that that would I mean sadly unite the country. I don't have any, and again. I mean, Patrick, you and I talk about this all the time. Most people actually don't see the world that differently. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, They don't. And I think that's we need our leaders to. The problem is, is, you know, you hear all the time in elections, like everyone's kind of given up on trying to. Uh, speak to the kind of silent majority and every it's just every election's a base turnout now. And I, I think that was where uh, just to get back on yesterday, that's where I had some disappointment yesterday is it was, it was a speech definitely to all the people who voted for him. It was a, yeah. it was a rally cry. Right. But uh, the, the, the question earlier about uh, what, what the moment reminded me of, you know, the reason I love Lincoln Secker and Augurl so much, one of my favorite speeches is given, you know, I think a month before the civil war ended and the North wanted fire and brimstone. They were mad. They they were furious at the South. And Lincoln didn't do that. He it, it was malice toward none and charity toward all. And he gave a unifying, uh, optimistic speech. And that's why it's chiseled uh, in that memorial. Uh, and it's taught in textbooks uh, because I, I think leadership and governing so often is about not doing the thing uh, that just you want to come out of you so bad because you're so angry and you're so furious. It's about a type of restraint that I think only our great leaders are able to show at times of, of real peril. And that's leadership in general. Yeah, absolutely. Making the unpopular decision. Yeah, it was the second inaugural is one of the great orations of, of our history and we're going to be all right. I'm I'm seconding Howard's motion that we believe in America. But I got to remind you that Lincoln gave the speech, got shot. Andrew Johnson became president and the South won the peace. The South lost the war and won the peace. Yeah, but that, that so doesn't need to be a reflection of what the speech was in the moment it was given. I, I know all I, that. I, 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 I hear agree. you. I agree. <laughs> a republic if you can keep it uh i, I think it's, right. is is where we is where we stand and 
you know, uh, one of my favorite quotes by, by Dr. King, you know, is we must accept this. We must accept disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. Um, and so we are disappointed in what is going on. We're disappointed in the process, uh, but we should never lose hope. Uh, hope that we can keep this republic. And I think that that, that is what um, like minds like we have on this podcast and, and like minds like our colleagues at Cozen um, and even our friends and family members that we're close to, there's enough of us and there's enough Americans who believe in hope and who believe in that we will get through this. And I think that that is our shining star um, as a country and it always has been through all of those situations that we've outlined. Tristan for president. Tristan for president. I already put him in charge of the CDC. Now, now Mark, that's a demotion. Just to be clear, (laughs) that's a demotion. So I want beautifully said, beautifully said, motion to adjourn. The perfect (laughs) note on which to end this podcast. I just want to point out that while this has been a scintillating discussion, I don't know if you can see it, but we did not succeed in waking up Brady Schweitzer from his <laughs> his dog nap in the chair in my office. He's been snoring the whole time. I hope that doesn't uh, interfere with the listening audience's enjoyment of this podcast. But that was that was an excellent note, Tristan, on which to end this. And we're looking forward to a great year and we will be back next week. Caitlin will be back. And uh, Tristan, Towner, Patrick, Mark. Happy New Year and and thanks, everybody. New Year. Happy New Year. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.